0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to AM Live. Thank you for tuning in. Hope your weekend is going okay. Ukraine is uh, once again front and center as this war goes on. Um, A lot of horrific things have happened, which we will talk about today. And we'll talk about what a dangerous moment this is with both sides, the U.S. and Russia, lodging allegations of uh, potential false flags with chemical weapons to pin the blame on the other. And when you have the world's top two nuclear powers trading allegations like this, uh, this is a very ominous moment, to say the least. So it's important to get into that and talk about what we know and what we don't know. And um, I want to spend as much time today on callers as I can. So let's get right to it. And for anyone who's new, basically... If you want to join the discussion, there's an option there to uh, to become a caller to join in, and that's where you ask questions and When you come into the calling room and I let you in, there's a microphone button in the bottom right that you can click to unmute yourself and uh, let's take the first caller, who happens to be my partner, Karina, who got there first online, so hi, Katie, you have to unmute yourself.
1: Hello, can you hear me?
0: Yes, hi. <laughs>
2: Hi, everybody. I just want to announce that today is a very special day. Uh, the birthday of the Buzzsaw, Aaron Matte. Not only is Aaron a dedicated journalist, he's a loving friend and a supportive colleague and my beloved partner. Um, thank you, sweetie, for living the fullest expression of you and for shining your brilliant light with all of us. I love you so much. And if you're calling in today, and feel so compelled, please share uh, your birthday wishes for our guy
0: <laughs> well that 's really nice, thank you honey that 's really sweet. I really appreciate that and thank you for all your support of me uh, and help and your help in letting me do the work i do uh, you 're a big part of it and i 'm um, very grateful for that so thank you. Uh, I appreciate that and uh, nobody feel should feel compelled to uh, wish me happy birthday we can We can leave it at that <laughs> and uh, and I really appreciate. The birthday wishes. So thanks, Cuddy. Thank you. And Kathy, you are next.
3: Hi, happy birthday, Aaron. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I was just going to say, uh, it, it, you know, both both sides are accusing the other, but I really think that um, Russia has a better claim here because they have produced evidence um in the form of documents some of them signed by us officials and apparently they have other evidence which i don't know what that is but they say it's posted they're going to post it on their website um you know um the other thing that really got me was that <clears throat> the like I listened to the Security Council um, hearing on it, and, um, well, Albania, which is basically giving the West side of the story on this, um, was saying, well, you know, claiming that Russia had this history of cancer biological attacks, and it really, um, it really got me because what they're citing for Russia's history of um, former attacks is um, the poisoning of Navalny, the poisoning of the Skripals, and um, the uh, false flag in in Dumas. That's their evidence that Russia was, um, you know, has this history of using chemical and biological. All of those we're completely debunked, but the mainstream press just didn't print it. And of course, you don't it because you yeah. went to yeah. all this trouble to debunk the, the you know, story that there was a chemical attack in Jim Loss. Now, the U.S. is just blithely using that as a history. In fact, yeah. the U.S. is the one with the history of you know biological attacks there's the anthrax attack but there there's others um they're always getting busted using these dual purpose labs it's just such the situation it really
0: yeah and then what was funny was if you caught Victoria Nuland in her testimony when she was asked about the biological labs inside Ukraine she said it's classic russian technique to accuse others of of what they've been doing, you know? So basically she's accusing Russians of projecting, which is funny in itself because everybody projects. It's not like uniquely Russian, but the fact is that the, that the U.S. can accuse someone of that has double irony because, of course, the U.S. does it all the time. It accuses people of doing what it, it in fact does. So look, on the biological labs in Ukraine, I, that's a thing where I do think it was very interesting that Nuland did not issue a flat-out denial when she had the chance to she could have just said no ukraine does not have biological or chemical warfare programs she didn't issue a denial and she then she expressed concern about ukraine's biological labs falling into russian hands which if they're benign wouldn't seem to be a very big concern but at the same time i also just because russia says that ukraine has these labs i um and they've published documents which i haven't read but i just i, I you know i i also need evidence before i'm going to except what Russia has said. To me, it just underscores how dangerous this moment it is, is and how cynical it has been for the U.S. to essentially weaponize the OPCW to lodge false claims against Syria, when, as we know, not just from the OPCW whistleblowers, but from the reporting of Seymour Hersh and from leaks that have actually come out from the Obama administration, the Obama administration knew full well that the Syrian government did not commit the chemical attacks the major ones it was accused of in Guta 2013 and Duma 2018. It was fully aware of that, and it publicly said otherwise. And that background now is making this moment all the more dangerous because now both sides are accusing the other of plotting false flags, and it's hard to basically trust anybody, especially from my point of view, the U.S. And it's, um, it's, it's very dangerous because some people in NATO are talking about using a chemical weapons incident as justification to get involved in Ukraine. So it's, it's a very, very dangerous moment.
3: Which they have done in the past, used allegations of chemical attacks in order to, you know, um, intervene. Yes, they in did. In the past, I mean, Yeah. Um, and just the last thing, uh, you know, I think previously, and I really don't have all the, you know, details of this down, but I do remember it. Um, I think it came up during the Skripal thing that, you know, the OPCW used to have a a verification process where um, countries were supposed to, you know, allow them to check and verify that they had gotten rid of all their um, labs and, you know, dangerous uh, biological substances and so forth. So um, the, Russia submitted to that process, and the OC- OPCW came in and verified that they didn't have any chemical weapons. The U.S. completely refused to do so; they never did so, and then they changed the the law so that there wasn't a verification process anymore. So they're saying, and now the U.S. is saying, you know, like that that Russia has this history, but Russia completely complied with all the, you know, everything that was asked of them, hmm. and the U.S. never has. So I just wanted to insert uh, that also.
0: Well, I do know that part about you, uh, the U.S. refusing to comply, the U.S. refusing to allow inspections of its own facilities. I didn't know that about Russia. And look, I wouldn't be surprised if Russia has still maintained a chemical weapons production program or and a biological weapons program too. I would not be surprised. I mean, why? Well, this is no what, evidence
3: the, of that.
0: Well, I, I'm not saying there's evidence. I'm saying I wouldn't be surprised if they did. That's well, a, if this only seems it,
3: wrong to say you wouldn't be surprised when we have a lot of evidence of the U.S. and none from Russia, it seems like everybody's always saying, well, of course, Russia, you know, has lied in the past. You know, a lot of this stuff they say is just knee-jerk kind of stuff where I don't see any evidence of this kind of thing.
0: Well, fair enough. I, that's that's fair, fair enough to point out. I'm just... I just – I'm allowing for possibilities based on things we can't see because a lot of stuff does happen secretly. But you're right, and it's certainly – the bottom line is it's very hypocritical for Russia to be accused of covering up for chemical weapons attacks in Syria when we know from the the highest sources, whether they're from the OPCW or from people inside the U.S. intelligence community and the Obama administration who – uh, who were uh, warning about this for Cy Hirsch's articles in the, in the London Review of Books that actually it was the death squad rebels in Syria backed by the U.S. and their allies who were committing chemical attacks or staging chemical attacks in the case of Duma. It's very hypocritical for the U.S. to try to claim a higher ground over Russia. And let me just actually quote to you uh, uh, from an article that was written by Charles Glass, a veteran correspondent in Harper's in 2019 about Syria. And he has a line in there about the, red, about the red line that was laid down by Obama, where Obama said that if we start seeing chemical attacks in Syria, that's a red line and that would trigger military strikes by the U.S. And so Charles Glass speaks to an unnamed former U.S. ambassador to the Middle East who says this, quote, the red line was an open invitation to a false flag operation. And that's the same thing now in Ukraine. Now that NATO member states and officials are saying that a chemical weapons attack by Russia could trigger NATO intervention. Then you're incentivizing somebody inside Ukraine who wants NATO to get involved to commit some kind of false flag. So exactly. it's it's a it's a very very dangerous moment.
3: Okay, say, I,
0: Kathy, you are cutting out. able
3: to say that the Duma attack, you know, was a false flag. Um, the same thing with Russia Gate. If we allow these Lies to stand, or for them to just sort of ignore the debunking or the proof against it, and then you know because Your words. Thank you for that,
0: Kathy. Sorry, I, Kathy. Sorry, I had to remove you because you were just your your line was breaking up. But if you want to call back in, okay. um, back in the queue we can try later. So thank you. So Steve, you're up. No. <laughs> Hi, Aaron. Happy birthday.
4: And thank you you for everything that you do to um, shed light on a lot of the stuff that's going on. Um, I see uh, classic signs of an empire in decline, you know, as our elite is insulated from the suffering of the masses. Um, They just gave themselves a raise, as I understand. Um, And so I guess I was curious on your thoughts on... Do you think uh, what's going on in Ukraine and what seems to be kind of Russia's finally putting its foot down and not allowing the U.S. to run rampant? Um, do you see this event as accelerating U.S. imperial decline, um, uh, uh, stalling imperial decline, or neither?
0: For me personally, it's too early to weigh in on that. That's the question on everyone's mind, right? What does this mean for the geopolitical order? Are we entering a multipolar order? Is this the end of U.S. supremacy? I I don't know. The problem with that question is, what if Putin has made a huge strategic error and he thought that he could take Ukraine without much resistance and that hasn't mm-hmm. happened and this will cause major damage to his economy um, and what if he can't, weather it what if the contingencies that he's uh that he's taken into account uh and and his plans and his hopes for being able to turn to china don't don't pan out there's so much unknown you know so um anything is possible and i'm certainly not ready to declare an end to the u.s empire it's quite possible i mean people i speak to who are sympathetic to Russian grievances when it comes to the expansion of NATO and the use of Ukraine as essentially cannon fodder for a proxy war against Russia for the last eight years since the 2014 coup. Uh, They think that Putin's made a huge strategic error, just putting aside the morality and the legality of invading a neighboring country and causing all these refugees and bombing cities just from the point of view of Russian interests that they think that Putin's made a huge mistake for his own uh, political future and his own country's future. You know, so I um, and for me, it's just too early to make a call on that. So I just have to defer.
4: That's a fair assessment. Thank you for taking my call.
0: Have what do one. you think? What do you think, Steve?
4: Um, I don't know. Honestly, like I'm in the position where like we either go to the negotiating table and figure out how to resolve this uh, diplomatically or it gets like real, real bad, like historically bad, like nuclear weapons bad. So. It's given me a lot of anxiety, so I try not to think about it too much, but that's kind of my general opinion.
0: I totally agree. And that's why it's like to think about the longer term uh, ramifications. It's just too, it's it's both too early and it's also, I think, not the paramount concern. The paramount concern should be finding an off-ramp for everybody. And so far, like as much destruction as Russia has caused, and they have caused a lot, in some ways they've still been holding back. They could inflict so much more damage, which is scary to think because it's already been really bad, but they could. And so far, the U.S. policy just seems to be fine with sacrificing Ukraine just to further its goals to bleed Russia and, and use Ukraine to stage an insurgency like they did with Afghanistan. And that's just its so scary.
4: Agreed. Well, thank you very much for your thoughts on that and have a wonderful rest of your day.
5: Thank you. You too. Hello, sir. Happy birthday. I'll try to give you the gift of brevity. I know I tend to go on. Um, I just wanted to make a comment about how few people on the left or the right are standing up to uh, the current war fever going on. And um, I think it's bad, but it's an opportunity to um, basically make connections that need to be made. And if if not now, then it's never going to happen. And Um, Your work with, you know, Scott Horton, when you've done shows, um, certain libertarians, I think that the left and people on the right that do have an anti-war principle, they need to form an anti-war coalition and that this is the time to do it. And I would like your ideas and thoughts on this. And uh, I I believe it starts with the media environment. Um, If there's like a media ecosystem where we can kind of have a decentralized unity where we're boosting each other's work is more powerful than we are as tiny little fringes on our own flanks. So I'd like to hear your thoughts.
0: Well, I've been thinking about the trans-partisan issues a lot more ever since this war started because I'm looking at all these Democrats, right? I'm looking at the fact that only Cory Bush and Ilhan Omar of all the Democratic Congress members in the House voted against the new sanctions bill against Russia and only Ilhan Omar is raising questions about the wisdom of flooding Ukraine with weapons so just one democratic congress member is just not even outright opposed well she is opposing but but mainly she's focusing on just questioning whether we want to be flooding Ukraine a country which does indeed have a serious you neo-Nazi know, problem inside its armed forces. That's undeniable. She's questioning the wisdom of flooding them with weapons. And so I'm looking at them, I'm looking at all these Democratic pundits, and I'm thinking, you know, I've always taken the Chomsky argument when it comes to elections, that you do vote for the party that will likely inflict less harm on the world. And generally, when you compare Democrats and Republicans, it's Democrats. And that's what I was advocating for when it comes to Biden and Trump. But look at what Biden has has done. I mean, even putting aside Ukraine for a second, he was going to get back into the Iran nuclear deal. He didn't do that. He was going to treat Saudi Arabia as a pariah and end support for the US backed war in Yemen, he didn't do that. So and I'm looking now at just how insane chauvinism, McCarthyism, Jingoism has taken over the Democratic Party. And I'm thinking, how can I ever despite my, you know, them being better on, on many more issues that I care about them Republicans, like for example, um, immigration or taxes, like they're not, they're not as, uh, they're not nearly as greedy as Republicans are, which it's across the board awful. I'm also thinking, how can I ever give my support to these people again, given what they're advocating uh, in in Ukraine and basically how they're, they're, they're pushing the world toward um, catastrophe. And so, and then I see people on the right who, you know, I completely disagree with them on immigration and many other issues who are uh, a lot more forcefully opposed to this war in Ukraine and using Ukraine as cannon fodder than is coming from the the Democratic Party I'm thinking so like why couldn't we work with these people in some way you know but it's just it's difficult because there are certain things that I'm still so diametrically opposed to them on, but I do think that needs to be considered. Uh, in some way, I don't know how, but there has to be something because right now the the bipartisan foreign policy consensus is totally dominating Washington, and the only voices of dissent are are those on the fringes of of both camps, like the libertarian, um, Trump adjacent people on the right who are critical of Biden's Russia policy, and then people on the on the left, like where I sit, so. Um, yeah, it, but I just don't know in what form uh, some kind of alliance w- would take. It's just it's it, these are things that are hard to organize, and that's not what I do. But um, it's a it's so the, the lack of space for dissent right now on the progressive left is just so um, upsetting. And I, I was just I just saw some old friends of mine who are so progressive, uh, so anti-war, very pro-Palestinian, and there, but their narratives of this war are shaped entirely by what they're getting from the media, and so they just don't know all the background that those of us, you know, in, in my camp do about like the coup in 2014, the proxy war over the last eight years. So for them, this is just a case of like Russia waking up one day and deciding to invade Ukraine because it wants to reconstitute the Soviet Union and because Putin is a dictator. None of the actual context about NATO and the Donbass war, which they weren't even aware of. And that's just, you know, that's not their fault because they're busy people and they don't have the time to do the kind of research that, that others do. But it just, it, it speaks to how dangerous this moment is and how there really needs to be an alternative to the bipartisan consensus.
5: Well, I appreciate your thoughts on that. And I agree with you. I know it's hard to organize across and even if you're not the one organizing, I think you represent the spirit of it just by doing the work you're doing and doing things like talking to Scott Horton and highlighting his work. I think that's at least the start of it. And I think it starts in the media and uh, you know, it, they're going to come for us all because these, these, these war hawks are going to call us all Putinists. They're going to call us all Russian traders. You know, if, it, if things ever got real serious in this country, this is like a test run for if shit ever hit the fan, you know, who's going to be, you know, basically turning on you and snitching on you and, the, the kind of things that we think uh, happen in authoritarian societies. So I think it's better to keep that in mind. Like they're calling Rushy, uh, Tulsi Gabbard a Russian agent because some fucking unregistered agent donated $60 to her campaign.
1: Yeah. I, saw yeah, that. I yeah, think yeah, it's because
5: yeah. she's anti-war. Yeah. So this whole thing, they're going to come for us all and we have to find allies where they exist. So thanks so much yeah. for your time.
0: Yeah. Thanks. And look, what's been normalized, you know, all these years of this term called Russian disinformation, which in itself is a propaganda term because it implies that there's something uniquely Russian about disinformation, that the Russians have a unique way of spreading disinformation as opposed to American disinformation or Israeli disinformation or or any other nationality. So it's a complete propaganda term, but it's been normalized to the point where now YouTube and everybody else takes RT off the air and we're just supposed to totally accept that as if that's normal, as if this blatant assault on free speech and a dissenting point of view – is somehow acceptable because it's, it's keeping us safe from the scourge of Russian disinformation. So it is a, um, it's, 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 it's freaky, but you can see how effective it is and how very little people seem to see the problem with it because it's just because this people have been bombarded with propaganda that Russia is this uh, demonic enemy and thus anything done to counter it, even if it means trampling free speech, is, is totally justified. And on the point about Scott Horton, He's a libertarian. I personally would not run want him running healthcare policy in the US, but uh when it comes to foreign policy, he to me is the one of the sharpest if if not the sharpest analysts around. I've learned so much from him and I am going to post in the episode notes for this episode a video and a speech he and transcript of a speech he recently gave on the he rec he recently gave on Ukraine, which is just so full of information and it's very uh, it's very worth listening to, so I'll post a link to that. And, As a
5: 2016 uh, Bernie supporter, I completely back what you're saying about Horton.
0: Yeah, yeah. All right, thanks, Andrew. Tom, you're up.
5: Hello, how are you doing? Good. Good. Um,
6: One thing, yeah, I mean, well, a few things, but what surprised me the most is, you know, in the run-up to this invasion, that, you know, the U.S. was saying, you know, it's going to happen, and a lot of people said, well, we don't think it's going to happen. Like, such people on the left, oh, we don't, we think this... But at the same time, there was so little talk of like peace or negotiations. And, and, and at this point right now, there's so little talk of like some kind of detente. We have to. I mean, these are the most, you know, Russia's a nuclear power. We're a nuclear power. I, I don't understand why there isn't more talk of peace, of negotiations, of these people getting together, of the United States maybe leading that. Only thing I can think of is that, yes, we wanted this war. We pushed Russia into it, and we want to bleed them dry through it. But I don't know that – I mean, I'm older. I'm 54. I'll be turning 54. I mean, I remember the Iraq – I remember the first Gulf War. I remember the Iraq War. I mean, I was so angry, shock and awe and all that. I mean, I I threw an ashtray back when I smoked through my television set during shock and awe. I was so angry. But I can't understand. There's no voices, There's nobody in the Democratic Party. There's nobody saying, well, why aren't we going to have a we need to negotiate? Yep. And I don't see this being beneficial to Biden in the long run or even. The, I don't know. Maybe it is in the short run. I don't I just wonder what kind of calculus was made, if there was any real effort to to stop this from happening and if there's going to be any real effort going forward.
0: I don't think there was any real effort to stop it. I think there was a real effort to encourage it. And I think the reason why the U.S. was so confident for so many months that Russia was going to invade is because those were the months in which Russia was making its offers, which were essentially neutrality for Ukraine, so not joining anyone's bloc and not joining NATO, and rolling back offensive weapons that have been placed in former Soviet states since the late 90s. And the U.S. knew two things. It knew that it would reject these proposals because it has no interest in actually making peace with Russia and no interest in serious diplomacy and every interest in continued hegemony and using Ukraine as cannon fodder for that goal. And it also knew that this was a red line for Russia, that Russia would be forced to do something because William Burns, who's the head of the CIA, when he was the U.S. ambassador to Russia, he wrote that cable back in 2008 saying uh, that for All of Russian society, whether it's Putin or the opposite side of the spectrum to him, Ukraine and NATO is a red line and that Russia will not accept Ukrainian membership in NATO and will take drastic steps to prevent that. So given that they knew that they were going to reject Russia's proposals and given that they knew how important this was to Russia and given that at the same time, the Ukrainian government, I believe with U.S. blessing, if not direct U.S. orders, was, was stalling on the Minsk uh, talks, which were essentially that had been going on for seven years now, trying to implement an agreement that was actually already signed between Ukraine and the rebels in the East, which would end the war in the Donbass uh, in, uh, by having the Donbass be demilitarized, but in exchange get some autonomy, which would essentially give the Donbass a veto over Ukraine joining NATO. Ukraine, uh, Zelensky was refusing to even negotiate with the rebels' re- representatives, which made a a deal impossible and this this uh, continued right up, to, right, right up until the very end so Russia got the sign that the u s was not going to seriously entertain its proposals about Ukraine and NATO, and also got the sign that Ukraine was not interested in actually ending the war in the donbass and Russia says that it had indications that Ukraine was actually planning to escalate its war on the russian speaking people of the donbass and i i don't They've released documents that they say prove that, but I don't have the capacity to vet those because uh, I can't read the language, and I also don't know their authenticity. But regardless, there were plenty of signs from the U.S. and Ukrainian side that peace was just not on the table. So that's why I think U.S. was so confident that Russia would eventually invade. And there's actually a new article out, and I hate to quote The Intercept because it's I think it's such a uh, compromised organization, but. There's a new article by Jim Risen who spoke to current and former intelligence officials who say that according to the the CIA, Putin's decision to invade was very, very last minute. And that makes sense because if you so far, if you look how the invasion is going, they do appear pretty disorganized. And so it does look like this was a last minute decision. And that's probably because Putin was waiting to see how things would play out. If there would be any type of conciliatory gestures coming from the u.s and ukrainian side but there just weren't so he made his move
6: doesn't that make it more dangerous almost if it was kind of like a last minute decision of course it does and now that we're you know i just don't see the anybody anybody serious saying hey we got to slow down we got to stop we have to we have to assess what's going on and you know the military industrial complex has always played these games to make you know I saw like after, you know, the Soviet Union fell, and that we, we, I remember we were talking about a peace dividend. Well, that ended quick after 9 11. Um, I think that, you know, but the thing is, they never played this dangerous of a game with a nuclear power. We, don't want, yeah. you know, Iraq, a war, you know, wars like that, you know, this yeah. is a dangerous game. And I don't see, I don't understand how Biden, I mean, I, the administration, any administration would want to be, want this. And how it could, they, they think it could benefit them
0: politically. Well, two, two points there. On the point of, of dangers, there's one thing I, I forgot to say, and um, but it's raised by your point, which is that speaking of nuclear dangers, a few days before Russia invaded, Zelensky went to the Munich Security Conference and talked about Ukraine uh, acquiring nuclear weapons again after giving them up in 1994. I mean, they gave up the Soviet Union's weapons that were on Ukrainian soil. And Zelensky talked about going back on that and developing their own nuclear weapons, which was incredibly reckless to say. Um, and now, in terms of what, b- why Biden would want this, well, look, this is the crew, Biden, Victoria Nuland, Jake Sullivan, Blinken, who played a critical role in the 2014 coup that kicked all this off, that basically uh, where the U.S. decided that instead of, letting, instead of leaving Ukraine alone, they were going to force Yanukovych the the president back then to choose between the US and the EU or Russia it was one or the other that, that the Ukraine could not have both it was going to have to pick a side uh and when Yanukovych refused to go along when he when he basically he realized that if he accepted the terms of the IMF that were being demanded of him to join a European Union trade agreement that that would mean for him political suicide because he was being forced to accept pension cuts energy cuts and he was also being forced to cut ties to Russia, which he knew would be not just bad for his country, but politically for him, suicidal, because so many of his supporters were Russian speakers, were ethnic Russians in Ukraine. So when he resisted that, that's when he got couped in a, uh, w- with U.S. support by the far right. And the uh, um, Victoria Nuland, as we know from that leaked phone call, played a critical role in that. And Joe Biden was essentially the viceroy. Uh, who, who oversaw all this? Was well, yeah, nobody. and his son was so, again, so, getting
6: the money. I mean, what's yeah. going on in Ukraine? They, they, all these politicians have got their hands in it. Uh, yeah. So, gonna, so, and are yeah. we going to kill ourselves over this stupid? Yeah. Shit? Yeah. You know, it's yeah. disgusting. Yeah.
0: So, in terms of your question about what's their motive, I think that their motive is to continue what they started, where Trump was sort of a brief interruption where he came in talking about even cooperating with Russia. And so what did he get for that? He got being, he got accusations of being a Russian agent and he got Russia gate. And then when he briefly paused some weapons for for the Ukraine proxy war, he got impeached. But of course, the allegation was that he was doing that to hurt Biden, but they also were very upset just policy-wise that he was interrupting the proxy war by pausing weapons. So <laughs> now now that, now that they're back in power, they've picked up where they left off. And you know what? The best evidence for that that this was their goal to basically bait Russia and escalate this was recently written about in time magazine and i wrote about this on my sub stack i'll link to it where basically a former top aide to zelensky said that when biden came into office in early 20 in early 2021 zelensky's team crafted what they called quote a welcome gift for biden and that was banning three opposition television networks all of them pro-russian and uh putting the opposition leader who's also pro-russian very close to putin under house arrest and this was done this former zelensky aide said to cater to the biden agenda so the biden that says the biden agenda was to encourage confrontation with russia to basically not make peace with the uh, russian backed force inside the country but to ramp up confrontation with them and they got they they got what they wanted and um and this, by the way, speaks to the tough position I think Zelensky is in. Zelensky ran on a platform of peace. He was going to make peace in the Donbas. He was going to implement the Minsk Accords. And I, uh, he seems sincere about that, for all I know. But the problem is, the U.S., ever since the coup in 2014, that's the real uh, master in Ukraine. And without U.S. support, it would have been impossible for Minsk to be implemented. So Zelensky comes in, and the U.S. is putting no weight at all behind the Minsk Accords. And meanwhile, he has the far right in his country who are literally threatening to kill him if he makes peace with Russia. Literally, there were death threats to him from far right made leaders in the same way that they made previous thre- threats before. So if you're Zelensky and you have the far right who, who have previously led a coup back in 2014 and have a major base of support and actually have a major presence inside your own military... You're going to be helpless unless the even stronger power, which is the U.S., comes in to back you up and says, we're going to support President Zelensky's um, agenda for peace. In fact, if he doesn't implement it, we're going to withhold military aid and financial aid. But the U.S. didn't do that. They effectively encouraged Zelensky to abandon his peace platform, and that helps explain why we are where we are today. Now, this, by the way, I want to be clear on something. To me, this does not justify Russia's decision to invade and we can talk about that if, if people want to, but I still think Russia had other options, and I just don't see how, putting aside legality and morality, how he, doing this helps their position, and how why it couldn't have been handled in other ways. But perhaps people have different thoughts on that, and we can get to it. Thank but, you. Uh, so, thank you, Tom. Thanks for yeah. the call. All right, Samir. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes.
6: Yeah, so, I just had one question. Um, my question is about Israel. So there was a report the other day that the prime minister, uh, uh, Mr. Bennett, he, uh, he was, he had a meeting with Zelensky and he was encouraging him to pretty much back down and capitulate to Putin. So what, what's, it seems like Israel has been neutral, uh, thus far. So like, what do you think about that? Like Israel's position?
0: Well, Israel has a, re- has a relationship with Russia because, you know, for historical reasons and there's like, there's hundreds of thousands of, uh, Russians who now live in Israel, so the countries have have deep ties, which forces them to maintain a friendly relationship, even when it gets awkward in Syria, where they're on very different sides in Syria. Syria, Syria bombs. Uh, sorry, I'm sorry. Israel bombs Syria all the time, and Russia hasn't stopped it from doing that, even though Russia and Syria are very close allies, and even though Russian forces are inside Syria. And that just speaks to how Russia has also prioritized maintaining its friendly relations with with um, Israel. Now, Israel also has close ties to Ukraine, and Ukraine supports its periodic uh, attacks on Gaza. And so Israel's in a position to be a broker, and reportedly Israel's been pressuring Zelensky to accept Russian offers of neutrality in return for an end to the war. And that's what the, that's what the reports say. Now, people involved have denied it, so it's hard to know what's going on for sure, but... Essentially, that's why it, that's why Israel's is in a position to be a broker because if it's because it does happen to have friendly ties to both Ukraine and Russia.
6: All right, man. Appreciate it and happy birthday.
0: Thank you. Okay, Eric. Uh, happy birthday to you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yes, thank you.
2: <laughs> All right. What is it? The big uh, three
0: three. Uh, add ten years. The big four three.
2: What you yeah. well. Wow. I, would, I, I mean, the other day you had a thing online. I was like, he must have gotten a haircut or something because he looks really young. But I wouldn't have guessed uh, that old. But I mean, not that that's very old. It's the new. You know, <laughs> it's 18.
0: a new 33. It's the new 33. Yeah,
2: thank you. Well, yeah. I guess I was I thought we would relate a little bit just because I thought we were around the same age. But I'm, around, I'm 31 and, you know, I'm trying to keep things a little light because it's your birthday. But um, remember um, Austin Powers? I do. Yes. And uh, I don't know about you, but I would love to see a new Austin Powers film. But in the first Austin Powers film, um, there's that great scene where um, uh, Austin has just been uh, woken up from the warm liquid goo phase from being cryogenically frozen. And then so he's being introduced to everyone and they say, um, and we've got this guy from Russian intelligence. And he's like, Russian intelligence? Are you mad? It's like, oh, no, no. The Cold War is over. A lot's happened since you've been frozen. And he's like... (laughs) wow uh you, you're following this one right because then austin powers without missing a beat is just like all right we beat those capitalist pig dogs all right comrade and they're just <laughs> like uh no 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 austin we won it's like oh okay great capitalism in, <laughs> yay um but it's just funny to me because that was i mean you know i'm you know born in 1990 and so i feel like i guess you know It's a nostalgic thing. It's a nostalgic loss for me, because I don't know if you saw the recent South Park about how much this is all 80s nostalgia for everybody. Um, That was the theme of the episode, you know, how they're very topical. But um, it seems like, are we really going to just say that, like, the Cold War didn't end and that that wasn't, like, a good thing or, you know, that that wasn't, like, this nice thing to have, um, that we're just throwing that away because I think the people in power, I mean, you know, you hate to reduce things down to just like psychoanalysis. But I do think a lot of those people in power, it's like, I don't know. It's weird. It's like, they th- they feel like they missed out on something and that they're also missing out on another thing. You know, they missed out on the cold war and being, uh, part of all that excitement. And then they also missed out on being young and, uh, being part of the internet age. I don't know. I mean, it's kind of crazy to think about, but, um, I don't know if you've, read... but anyways, that's me trying to keep it light. Um, I guess well, thanks, Eric. <laughs> oh, do you have any plans today?
0: uh, yeah, i'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna go out tonight for dinner with uh with my partner and some friends.
2: oh sweet, oh sweet yeah. well, well, that sounds wonderful, okay, yeah. and then let me get let me get a more serious point in here, just to say that, okay, I'm trying to think of this from you know, I'm trying to think, okay, if Vladimir Putin is this you know, super villain or this Machiavellian, you know, states, you know, Clausewitz or or Metternich or any, any any other type of historical figure. And I'm trying to think, um, I don't know if you've had this thought before, but he, in, in his mind, he sees himself as being the one who has had to overcome this appeasement because we are, you know, on, here in the West, we always say we're, this is appeasement time if you want, if you offer vladimir putin anything it 's it's appeasement right yeah, and yeah. it 's one of those historical analogies you know it 's all kinds of analogy abuse mm-hmm. uh, these days so, but that doesn 't mean you shouldn 't have good or bad analogies you should try to um, try to make the appropriate analogy so you know in vladimir putin 's mind he 's got this sort of state that 's proto you know pretty much following along the lines of what looks to be like nazi germany you know i 'm trying to describe his opinion, know thine enemy right. Um, And that, you know, the thing with appeasement is that for eight years, he has allowed the people in Donbass to, you know, um, have this very uneasy settlement. Um, So basically, um, he's got this opportunity now to uh, invade and to kill um, as many of these Nazis who are volunteering to fight that he can. And Mm -hmm. it seems to me that it's one of those things where their metaphor for appeasement was you know well if only we had stopped hitler at an earlier stage you know if only we hadn't let him take the sudetenland or if only we had a uh, you know russia um uh england and france had powerful militaries that could have stopped germany before they fully remilitarized so
0: Erica, it could be it could be part yeah.
2: of a grand project and i just i was wondering if you would ever thought of that
0: a grand project by putin
2: as part of i mean if you think of him as what is his goal? I mean, he's trying to be like the, I, the, the I, greatest yeah. Russian statesman ever. Is he trying to be like, I, yeah, you know?
0: Yeah. I'm not a Kremlinologist. So I don't know uh, what goes on inside Putin's head and his inner circle. Um, Stephen F. Cohen, the late Stephen F. Cohen, who I basically relied on for all things Russia, because he was an actual expert on it, unlike so many of his detractors. Uh, he would say that Putin's main goal, main goal was to modernize Russia, that he inherited a Russia that was humiliated, uh, first by the defeat of the Soviet empire, and then by the period of the 1990s when under U.S. tutelage, the economy was looted and destroyed, and a lot of people got really, really rich. But for ordinary Russians, it was, it was a disaster. And for Putin, uh, his goal is to make Russia a modern country and a great power Once again, and he has, to a certain extent, succeeded in that up until this point, uh, in you know creating a middle class, uh, in in certainly improving things for the majority of Russians over the period of the 1990s, while of course still maintaining uh, power of an oligarch class that is still very much pillaging the country. But at least things have been gotten under have have come under more control than they were in the 1990s, which was just an outright disaster. And the question now for Putin is, has, has this war reversed all the gains that he made? That's what some economists say. And I guess we'll wait to see. But that's what puzzles me about his decision is knowing all the consequences that would come, including these sanctions and being cut off from the, the West, is why did he do it? And I don't know. Uh, I know what his concerns are when it comes to NATO, and I get those. Uh, in turn, He doesn't want to see Russia encircled by a hostile military alliance. And the fighting in the Donbass was taking a toll on uh, on him politically. He's been facing pressure for a long time now to intervene inside the Donbass because, again, ethnic Russians were being killed by Ukrainian forces who were uh, did have within them neo-Nazis. And this came out of the coup that happened in 2014 that was essentially an assault on Ukraine's Russian-speaking population. So his motives could be in countering that. I, I think the question is, did he make the right move in Invading the whole country, and I just don't think he did. I think he personally snapped, but um, people who have more expertise in Russia uh, might have a different opinion on that than me
2: Well, it's very touch and go, but um, anyways, happy birthday and um...
0: see you soon, Eric, thank you Hello, Aaron. Hi so uh,
7: I'm not going to sing, but uh happy birthday. I appreciate that. I'm much. Gonna... Sure. Um, So one of the things I wanted to talk about was the sanctions and the effect they're having here on people's daily lives. The inflation is really starting to hit in. And along with that, you know, at that point, I'm hoping that uh, even though I I don't wish for this on any of us, but that may at least uh, hopefully will stem some of the war fever among the American public when we really start to feel, I think it's inevitable pain. And the other thing is, what Russia's options are. And this is where I really wanted to hear what you thought. Um, Russia and China recently, before the invasion, agreed on in a 30-year gas deal on uh, a new pipeline, you know, to get billions more cubic meters of, of Russian gas across their common border with China. And the article that I read was from, uh, I think, late January, and it said they were going to be settling these transactions in euros. Well, now with the sanctions on Russia, um, which I think includes European banking. I'm no—I don't follow it that closely. But um, what impact is this going to have to some of Russia's ability to to maybe use other markets and try to to keep their economy going through like strengthening uh, economic uh, output or exports to places like China, a very big customer. So, what are your what are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, it's not my area of expertise yeah mine either <laughs> so, yeah so but i i just did an interview with somebody who i, I do reg- regard as an expert on this topic and that is uh, his name is ben aris and um he is uh with a website called uh, bne intelinews and he thinks that uh putin has put himself in a huge box that he is very skeptical he can get out of but obviously the bar- obviously the the thinking assuming that putin and his uh and his cabinet were, were rational, was that China would be there to help them out and that China's economic strength and proximity and, uh, would be sufficient for them to, to recover. But it's, I just don't, I don't know how you can look at already the, the impact of U.S. sanctions and also the, the steps that went further than people expected, which is seizing Russia's for, uh, foreign reserves, which is unprecedented for that to happen. I don't know. I, I mean, did Russia factor that into their cost-benefit analysis? I don't know. But I will link, I will link to the bottom of this, this episode, the notes, uh, the interview that I did with Ben Harris, and he has a better handle on it than, than I do. So thank you, Billy. And Susan, you are up. And Susan, if you're there, you want to hit the microphone button in the bottom right. Okay. Greg. It's dinner, Aaron. Um, thank, thank you. I assume that means happy birthday. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
8: I wanted to respond to actually that last guy sparked something. Billy, he sparked the last, uh, his comment sparked something in me that, you know, there's been actually a lot of cooperation between Russia and China prior to the Olympic Games. You know, it seems like Russia came to some sort of agreement that they weren't going to do an invasion um after or before the olympic games ended so that it wouldn't screw with that over in china and as well as that it i mean russia is the small pawn in the larger game of if you look at it in terms of real politic are they don't have nearly as much control as china does and to me it seems like a huge realignment i don't know if you've listened to peter zion before but he talks about his thesis on where we're going is that it's going to be a uh a, a multipolar world where uh with a lot of chaos in, in the future and that seems to be playing out and i was wondering i mean this is kind of off topic from what i was just saying because he sparked that thought but i was wondering what you thought of um what was this guy's name? Uh, the Russian or the Ukrainian oligarch? Um, what was his name? Shoot, call him Kalamoyski, and his influence maybe over Zelensky. Potentially, he owned the TV channel One Plus One during the period where Zelensky was uh, playing uh, the president on that show called "Servant of the People," and. Actually, he was disavowed by Anthony Blinken in 2021 and banned from entering the United States as well as his entire family. And I was wondering if you had any um, any insight on that, because I only recently learned about him and his influence and also how he potentially has influence over Biden. I haven't looked into that or Biden's son. Uh, I haven't looked into that either. But maybe you have some insight.
0: So is he the same guy who also funded the Azov Battalion? I don't actually
8: know, but I know he was part of the uh, Ukrop party, which has been defined differently by different parties in different parts of the world. Some people are like, "Oh, it's a center-left party." Other people have said it's a far-right party. To me, it's a It's obviously a nationalist party, and it's a. It, they actually took. Ukrop is a word that was used as a derogatory term by Russians towards Ukrainians, and it's kind of like a reclamation of the word in a way, which is
0: right. interesting and I, in and of itself. Right. And his name again, it was Igor Kolomoisky. I, yeah,
8: I'll spell it out for you. Yeah, no, no,
0: the... I got it. Yeah, so he he is he so he so basically Zelensky's top financial backer, and, mm-hmm. he's, and he's also a huge backer of the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion ever since it was formed in 2014, as well as other uh, right-wing battalions as well. So he's had a uh, he was he basically bankrolled Zelensky's presidential campaign. And perhaps that explains why Zelensky, as I was talking about before, after winning office essentially quickly abandoned his his main platform pledge which was to make peace in the Donbass uh because his one of his main backers was also a key backer of the Azov battalion and when Zelensky went to the Donbass to, to campaign for making peace the Azov Battalion confronted him, and there's a really humiliating video of this where they tell him basically to fuck off. They tell him to go away. And he says something like, I'm the president, you can't treat me like this, and they laugh at him. And that was a reflection of how much power that they have inside of the Ukrainian military. And they won because he quickly backed down. Uh, he also faced, there were big rallies uh, against making peace with Russia and where, as I was talking about before, people were threatening his life and threatening his government. And I think that was very impactful on him and it certainly didn't help that his main backer financially was also uh, a funder of the same groups who were campaigning against his peace platform and he um, I believe also when the when the Pandora papers came out that exposed that Zelensky and some of his key people were essentially hiding money that they got from Kolamoyski so this guy obviously has a very big role in in Zelensky's uh, presidency,
8: yeah, and he like offered bounties on Russian or er, Russian separatists at one point during the uh, initial, you know, 2014 coup. Yeah. It was like eight thousand bucks, so he was uh wow. <laughs> not yeah. happy about
0: it. Yeah, um,
8: yeah. I was yeah. also one one other question. Unless you want to move
0: on, but no worries. Well, you know what? Because there's a long line. Yes, we're gonna have to, Greg. All right, all right. So have a good. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Jay Moore, Boston, you're on. Hey, Aaron, happy birthday. (laughs) Thank you. Um, So I wanted to
9: um, sort of address the sanctions, both domestically and then globally, and what could potentially happen. And domestically, I think it's ultimately going to blow back on us. Hmm. Um, Because from what I understand, what Russia exports is the majority of what they export are natural resources. What they produce to export is um, fertilizer and vodka, essentially. Um, But they produce a lot of fertilizer for the rest of the world. And they also uh, supply a lot of grain to the rest of the world. Um, So that means what we import, a lot of the uh, food that we import is going to cost more um because if we're restraining russia's ability to export that um that's going to blow back on us that way the other way i think uh, globally it's going to blow back on us is that what you're already seeing is i think that you're tightening the bond with um russia and china um and then you're you're gonna you're polarizing the world and then also a lot of um uh, Latin America, South America, uh, African countries, and all and all these countries that we've colonized and uh, treated poorly for hundreds of years—they're getting tired of us. And it seems uh, that the 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 more we push this, um, like I don't know what the United States end game is, because uh, it just seems they're polarizing the world. um, against not us, not the people of the United States, but the government of the uh, United States. Because I was was listening to uh, George Galloway earlier, and he was reading some of the comments from European uh, listeners. And uh, Europe is just fed up with us. You know, they blame us for every conflict they've been in since World War II. Um, So I I just think this is... Because the United States and D.C. is so insulated that they're not thinking uh, some long term game about what's happening. And that ultimately it's going to isolate, like it's going to polarize the world uh, and we're just going to, you know, keep crumbling. The empire is going to keep crumbling, which is in some ways a good thing. But for the people is a bad thing. So those are my thoughts. Happy birthday.
0: Thank you yeah I don't have anything to add i uh I appreciate all your thoughts there. I think all that's quite plausible. It's just again i there are limits on my knowledge when it, especially when it comes to economic matters and i just i'm not I try to avoid speculation about the future but certainly, what is very clear is that right now the Biden administration is willing to accept pain on workers to pursue their geopolitical agenda when it comes to Russia. Because they, they knew, obviously, that what Russia would do in response. They know that Russian commodities play a very heavy role in the global economy. It's not just Russian oil, but it's other things, too, like aluminum and uh, fertilizer um, and uh, food production. All, all these things are really important. So they knew that, and I, I guess they just bargained that they don't care. They're so obsessed with Russia. Mm-hmm. They ha- They're so entrenched in the policies that they began eight years ago with the Maidan coup, I just don't think they care. And look, they, I mean, to look at their record for the last five years is all they talked about through our Trump was Russia, that Russia was the cause of their loss to Trump. Russia was the cause of all problems in the US, racism. Um, Russia could do anything just with the power of its magical social media bots. So they just backed backed themselves into that, um, into that like, uh, mindset and they just can't get out of it. It's the point where there's just an article there was just an article in the Washington Post this weekend saying that they had this strategy meeting where for the midterms their campaign message is going to be that this is all Putin's fault. You know right. Putin, Putin's <laughs> price hike. It's so they're just doubling down. And you could they, see
9: that coming from
0: a mile away. You certainly could I mean they doubled like the you know, right after Russia Gate collapsed with Robert Mueller's testimony mm-hmm. in July twenty nineteen where he wasn't even familiar with the details of his own investigation. They immediately pivoted to Ukraine Gate, now Trump gave them a gift with that when he was asking for Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden. But still, like you know, they took that again to the same level of where this was the top issue in the country of whether or not we're arming Ukraine, and we have this is the paramount issue that most Americans care about. And not surprisingly, and this is exactly what I warned about when this was happening, uh, Trump ended ended that impeachment over the Ukraine thing with the highest approval ratings of his presidency. And if not for coronavirus, I think it's pretty likely that Democrats would have gotten uh defeated because what what do they, what do they have to show people uh after four years of screaming about Russia and Russia conspiracies that didn't pan out so nothing n- now they're n- now they have a war they can campaign on, but if that war is going to be causing hardship at home, I just don't know how receptive people will be to the message that all that we have to sacrifice, you have to go without uh food and you have to pay higher gas prices well, for the sake th- of the that was we part spend. of my
9: point about the blowback. Um, because this thought that sanctioning Russia and then cutting them off of uh, like, I think PayPal just said something that they're going to cut off all Russians or yeah. something ridiculous. Yeah. So that's gonna Again, it's going to bond a certain part of the, of the globe, all with Russia, China. Um, and that's ultimately going to blow back on us. And then one other, or the one other point that I wanted to make is why this country, or a a large portion of it, is in such a fever pitch of pro-Ukraine. You know, anything, any type of nuance, but hey, there's context here. Oh, you're a Russian agent. Why do you, you know, why do you want to kill children in Ukraine? You know, all this ridiculousness, and then the fever pitch of the press, where you just have people that. I don't care what a no-fly zone is. I want a no-fly zone. That people are so unhinged that this is definitely still tied to Trump and RussiaGate, right? So they're they're like they hate Trump so much, and then with six years of um, psychological torture of RussiaGate, that they're just embracing this insanity wholeheartedly in this country. Not so much in Europe, from what I can understand, but definitely in here. And then the United States government is step by step, domino by domino, um, insulating the United, uh, insulating us from information outside of just the government narrative. Yep. So,
0: yeah, I totally it's crazy. agree. I totally agree. All right. Th- take care. Thank you for the call. You too. Tammy.
10: Hi, Aaron. Greetings from Melbourne, Australia, and happy birthday. Thank you. Um, really appreciate the service that I think you provide for, um, you know, alternative perspectives on things that people just aren't hearing about. So I'm so grateful for that. I'm a long time listener. Um, I just wanted to, first of all, just mention that, um, you know, Australian state and corporate media, for the most part, are just completely parroting um the kind of hysteria that I've heard um, folks on your end describing uh, in the press and, you know, our state media, which is typically, you know, framed as a neutral party that, um, uh, you know, interrogates everybody in a nonpartisan way as it's supposed to, as journalists are supposed to, suddenly that's just gone out the window and what's seen as, you know, tough talking points or tough questioning is, is rather um, instead of asking, you know, why are you, you um, you know, contributing weapons, why are you also sending weapons or anything anything, why? They don't ask why. Now the question is, well, are you doing enough and have you thought ahead enough about, you know, whether our AUKUS deal, um, you know, with the US and the UK is actually um, you know, what you know, thought out properly and, and it's all it's all about strategy and it's all there's just zero questioning of the actual premise of going in and just, you know, um unquestioningly assisting with with this kind of war effort. So I, I find that just immensely frustrating. And um, I have heard one very mild counter example of um, a, a sort of local um, Guardian Australia podcast interviewing uh, an international relations expert who was a little more balanced in his um, analysis, thankfully. But just, yeah, that was one exception. And I just, I wish, I don't know, maybe there are um, analysts here that, a kind of equivalence to people like yourself and, and um, other great, great um, alternative media people that exist in the U S but I haven't found them yet. So if you know anyone and if any Australian listeners are on, please um, let me know. Cause I just find it so demoralizing. Um,
0: do you know, do you know Caitlin Johnstone? Have you heard of her?
10: I have heard of her. Yes.
0: So I'll link to her website in the show notes for this. And she's great. And she is, I believe Australian. And okay. I love I love her writing. She's uh she very much shares your point of view and okay. it's great. And yeah, the dynamic you're describing, I mean it's what Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman laid out in Manufacturing Consent, where the spectrum of debate is so narrow that you're not allowed to question the underlying premise of whatever the policy is, whether it's uh going to war in Libya or Iraq or Syria or fueling a proxy war in Ukraine, you do not question the premise you're only allowed to question whether the strategy is being effectively carried out or not, and that's just how it works everywhere. And it works so beautifully because no one has to tell anybody what to say, but everyone just gets the message that if you want to be accepted, if you want to have a platform, if you want to have a job, there are just certain questions you do not ask and certain assumptions you just do not challenge. And it's a just putting aside, putting aside my 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 opinion of it, just uh, objectively as a system. It works incredibly well. (laughs) It's so efficient. It's so effective, and uh, and it it's unfortunately that's that's the the dynamic everywhere uh, in all of our so-called Western democracies.
10: Yes, and and I just also um, briefly wanted to mention that um, we have you know huge communities that came over here at the end of the Cold War either directly um, or in some cases for the Jewish communities via Israel. I grew up with a lot of. Um Kind of cold war babies, you know, who left um Russia or well the former Soviet Union, and actually you know many of them have families that speak both languages they have family left on both sides of the border. This is a tragedy for everybody involved on a personal level, and i I really i mean my heart goes out to them and, and I think some of them are super frustrated and feel extremely unheard at the moment as well, but there was um one particular friend of mine who who has links to both, and she's only hearing. The mainstream media talking points herself beyond hearing what her family um in uh, Ukraine and Russia are telling her, and you know she she keeps bringing up this this thing that I don't really know how to respond to, and I'd be curious to hear what what you would say to this. Um, she sort of keeps plugging this idea of the in principle not wanting to allow this unpredictable and dangerous leader to do what he wants to, like there's this sort of strong impulse to want to do something, like what's what's the point, I think she said something like, what's the point of having this kind of Western alliance or Western, um, you know, kind of democratic alliance in the big picture um, if we can't stand up to a bad actor like this or a dangerous Peter, uh, leader like Putin? And, I mean, it sounds really obviously very righteous and good in principle, but it's also completely in the abstract unless you actually think about like the net gains or losses of doing something like that, like including obviously for the Ukrainian people. So yeah, what what do you say to people who are like, well, aren't we fighting for like the freedom principle or this idea of like Western democracy?
0: I would say two things. First of all, if you just look at objectively the balance of power between Ukraine and Russia, Russia has such an overwhelming military. So just by virtue of its size and the size of its military and the experience of its military and the equipment of its military, it has such an overwhelming advantage that if your response to a Russian invasion is to flood Ukraine with more weapons, even though, of course, Ukrainians have the right to resist an invader. I mean, forgetting, forgetting the background, you know, when someone invades you, you have the right to resist. But objectively, I think if you look at it, all you're doing is sentencing more Ukrainians to die because no matter what, Russia, I think, will be able to prevail. And I'm not a military strategist, so maybe that's wrong, but that just seems to me to be the most plausible scenario, just given the power imbalance between the two sides, including that Russia has nukes. I mean, Russia can can cause the unthinkable. So to me, it's just reckless to flood Ukraine with more weapons for a fight that ultimately I just don't think it can win. And then you look at the... Um, the broader question of of uh, what to do, and the like, you can't like when you pose that question. It uh, about like like how can we just sit by and let this country invade another? That would be a fair question if the issue started on the day that Russia invaded. But unfortunately, there's an entire background, and the fact is, the background, at least in my opinion, shows that Russia has been responding to a crisis that it didn't start. And that includes expanding NATO to Russia's borders, placing uh, offensive weapons systems inside of these uh, new NATO states like Poland and Romania that are aimed at Russia. And then when it comes to Ukraine, pledging that it will become a a member of NATO. And then in 2014, backing a coup that overthrew a government that was trying to be neutral and instead installing it with a uh, far right infused government that was talking about joining NATO And that also essentially declared war on the country's Russian-speaking population and has since been fighting a war against those Russian rebels for the last eight years that's killed 14,000 people. And Russia, instead of just invading Ukraine eight years ago, like aside from Crimea, which it took, although it took, I believe, with the support of the population there, um, Russia has been proposing uh, reasonable proposals, I think, including the Minsk Accords, which – were reached and negotiated in 2015 between Kiev and the rebels. And Moscow supported those Minsk accords. And Russia also up until the very end was just proposing essentially a grand bargain of neutrality for Ukraine and a rollback of NATO weapons in surrounding Soviet states. Now, maybe maybe the latter proposal could not be achieved, but at least the U.S. could have, I think, seriously negotiated and not refused to take NATO membership off of the table. It just refused that. It said, no way. Even though, by the way, the U.S. has no real interest in letting Ukraine into NATO, at least not anytime soon. So the U.S., for a principle of a country's potentially one day joining this hostile military alliance, essentially let a war happen. And I just think that that's the part that's reckless. So basically, the question of, of how can we just let this country do this, um, it's it can only, that question can only be posed if you don't believe that Russia uh, undertook good faith efforts to avoid a war. And I think Russia's decision was reckless and I think it's criminal, but I do think that they made serious proposals before the war that could have ended. it. And I think it was reckless for the US to lead the way in rejecting them. So sorry, that's a long answer to your question, but I hope that makes sense.
10: Yeah, no, thank you. I I really appreciate it. And perhaps next time you do... um a call in if it's at a time that I'm awake because sometimes it's not with the time zone difference. Um, perhaps I'll, uh, I'll call in a, and talk about, um, the, the China and Indochina consequences, which are really kind of a lot of what the media here are also kind of obsessing about at the moment. So, um, thank you so much for taking my call. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Tim, you are up and Tim, if you're there, Hey, sorry.
1: Um, I hate birthdays, so my condolences. It'll be over soon for you.
0: (laughs) Thanks. Thank you.
1: Um, I wanted to try out two ideas on you. One is kind of, I think, actually really hopeful, and the second one is kind of horrifying, so it's a bit of a kind of shit sandwich, if you see what I mean. You know, I think that the moment that we're living through is actually um, the rise of China means the end of Western colonialism. And... Russia is kind of in the sidecar on that. Uh, but I think that's really where this is headed. Um, the, the second thing that I think is actually um, kind of more horrifying is really um, no one seems to ask the question of why there are neo-Nazis in such a powerful position in Ukraine. And, you know, they're kind of, first of all, there's the argument about, you know, whether they exist at all, whatever. But it strikes me, it's blindingly obvious, and you actually almost stumbled over it when you were talking about the fact that Zelensky was backed by Kolomoisky, who also has been backing the Azov regime, right? Mm -hmm. The, The Nazis in Ukraine exist as enforcers to enforce the fact that that country has to sacrifice itself for American interests, right? That's why they're using... Uh, civilians as human shields that's why they've been terrorizing eastern ukraine for the last eight years um so and you know the fact that just this week we learned that 450 hts fighters from syria are being sent to fight in ukraine should really make you kind of zoom out a little bit and look at what we're doing right
0: well I mean, you know what the, the thing is i don't necessarily trust those reports I know that that, that, that's been said, but I just, uh, it's hard for me to believe without seeing something really concrete. So just to explain to people, the allegation is that uh, militants from Idlib, which is the province of Syria that's controlled by HTS, which is formerly known as Al-Qaeda, it's basically Al-Qaeda under a rebranded name because Al-Qaeda doesn't sound so good uh, when you're trying to gain uh, and keep Western support, that they've sent 150 militants from Idlib to Ukraine to fight on the Ukrainian government side. And I, uh, we've also seen allegations that Syria has sent fighters to fight on the Russian side. And I just, um, I, I don't know if I accept those allegations or I don't accept them without seeing evidence and I haven't seen the evidence for it yet.
1: But it would make perfect sense, right? I mean, why have we been supporting HTS and all the, you know, 31 flavors of jihad in Syria? Um, why why have we overthrown the best governments South America's ever seen, including Lula? Um, you know, with the lawfare campaign, the State Department was stupid enough to boast about. You know, <laughs> I mean, we are a plague on this planet, right? And the rest of the world has had enough, and this is what it looks like.
0: Okay, well, listen. We'll see, right? We'll see what the geopolitical fallout is. I, um, As I've been saying, it's it's hard for me to speculate. People say that China is going to overtake the U.S. I, I have a hard time with that, uh, strictly because the U.S. military is still so powerful. No one can compare with it except for Russia and the nuclear realm. And... Um, U.S. corporations still dominate so much of the world economy. And so that's why I well, just ha- you know, so I don't know. I don't know. But I think these are all, I, I really like that these questions are being posed now. And, uh, you know, the like the question of whether we're in a new era is being really contemplated. And it's really interesting. And I'm very interested in it. I just don't, there are limits on what I can speculate and predict. I mean, I'll just,
1: I won't go on, but I would say actually the most significant uh, conflict here is actually between two different models one is industrial capitalism the other is finance capitalism so it's actually a replay of 1914 where the uh, Anglo countries were alarmed at how much of a better model eastern central Europe had uh, in terms of banking and that's what caused that war and this is repeating now that's the that's the stuff that people are okay are,
0: that, my, that's, that's- Yeah, that's outside my wheelhouse, so I I can't speak to that. But thank you, Tim. Thank you for coming. Andrew. Um,
11: Hi, Aaron. Happy birthday. Big fan. Thank you. Um, So my question sort of relates to Zelensky and um, how much power does he actually have. Um, From the coverage of the war, I've sort of been noticing him him sort of seeming more frustrated and um, less hopeful as the conflict goes on, more open to talks with Russia. And um, my question sort of relates to to if he were to... um, to give in to the Russian demands to sort of um to, to denazify the Ukrainian military, which would uh, mean he would sort of have to um to to dissolve the Azov battalion, this and that. Do you think he's actually capable of doing that? And, um what do you think happens to his um popularity? Because right now he's sort of the hero of the world taking a, a, a stand, an uncompromising stand against Putin. Um what happens if that changes? And, um, do you think he has the power to um control the ukrainian the, the the more right-wing elements
0: of the ukrainian military well let me quote you from an article that i'm writing right now i haven't published it yet but i'll just quote you from a uh, a paragraph of it it's i say this just two weeks before the russian invasion the new york times reported that zelensky quote would be taking extreme political risks even to enter would be taking extreme political risks even to entertain a peace deal with russia as his government could be rocked and possibly overthrown by far-right groups if he agrees to a peace deal that, in their minds, gives too much to Moscow. Yuri Yuri Hodimenko, the leader of the far-right Democratic Acts, even threatened Zelensky with an outright coup. If anybody, and this is quoting uh, this leader of the far-right Democratic Acts, if anybody from the Ukrainian government tries to sign such a document, a million people will take to the streets, and that government will cease being the government. And, uh, and that's the mood inside Ukraine. And that's what Zelensky is having to contend with, no matter what his intentions are. And there's even another quote from another far-right leader um, that said this about Zelensky. Um, back when Zelensky gave his, uh, his inaugural speech, he said that he was, uh, quote, prepared to give up my own position as long as peace arrives. And that drew a response from the co-founder of Right Sector, a guy named Dmitro Yaros. And this is what he said in response to Zelensky saying that he would be willing to give up his position to make peace. Yarosh said this, quote, no, he would lose his life. He will hang on some tree in Korechkylak, sorry, I can't pronounce that, if he betrays Ukraine and those people who died in the revolution and the war. And that's a reference to Maidan. So that's just a window and from the mouths of these far-right leaders who are very influential inside Ukraine, of what Zelensky would face if he tried to make peace. And I, I do think that's a major factor in his uh, thinking. And that's why it's so important that if the U.S. really wanted peace inside Ukraine, to get behind him and basically protect him from the far-right. Because if they can't do it, then no one else can. But they haven't so far. And that's why I've been arguing that they've, that they've effectively been siding with the far-right. And that's been clear ever since he took yeah. office. So um, I don't know what his actual intentions are. When he campaigned on peace, did he really mean it? I mean, I I have to take that on faith that he did. I have no reason to believe that he didn't. And maybe that was a con. I don't know. But certainly, if he really wanted to do it politically, I just don't know if he can, given the power of the far right in his country and the influence of the U.S., which seems to have no interest so far in in peace, and instead using Ukraine as cannon fodder for an insurgency against Russia.
11: Yeah, and, um, sort of, um, just, just adding to that, I've sort of been realizing that the Azov battalion, and um, and just more right-wing elements in Ukraine have sort of been taking the PR lead internationally. Like, um, I, I just came across some, um, a sort of drone footage of an assault on, um, on the Russia or, or on a Russian convoy, where they, um, like, rocketing, uh, personnel, ca- carriers, and, um, it's an invading force, so it's, um, you know, it's just war, but it's, um, it's branded with the, um, as a battalion and it's, um, it seems to be very popular. So yeah, it is. being they're, shared all over social media,
0: subject- that, that,
11: and that's the message that the world, you know what I mean? That the world hears first, which, um, also limits Zelensky.
0: I don't, I don't know if you saw this, but NATO on international women's day tweeted out uh, some tribute to the women of the Ukrainian military. They had to delete the tweet because one of the women uh, soldiers in their photos was wearing a the, neo-fascist. The sun, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Pat. So they had to they had to delete it. And um, when uh, a few weeks before the invasion, there was this media stunt where like great-grandmothers of Ukraine were being trained to fight the Russians, and who carried out that media stunt? It was the Azov Battalion. And Richard Engel of NBC, of NBC News, totally cluelessly, took part in this stunt and featured and showed the Azov insignia not knowing i'm sure unless he doesn't care that they're nazis but i doubt that i just don't think he knew who these people actually are but it speaks to their importance in the ukrainian military and in just the ukrainian propaganda campaign that these are the people who are putting on media stunts
11: exactly I, I just um, one more quick thing to add on what do you think is the mood of the ukrainian population as a whole do you think there's any that um that remains so not like in favor of putin's invasion but at least sympathetic to come to, um, to russia's um uh uh, not interest um russia's problems with um to and, and the the far
0: well i mean anybody who's lost family or has been driven from their homes it's hard to believe that they would have any sympathy towards russia at all and i right i mean that's that would be a very natural reaction in terms of people who i know uh it's divided i know someone from the town of kharkiv which is um you know many russian speakers uh, he himself speaks russian and his country, his town, got destroyed by Russian bombs. At least that's what we know so far. Unless it might come out that someone else was uh, that the, the Azov or someone was guilty of these t- attacks. But so far, from what we know, it was Russia. And he can't believe that Russia destroyed his his own hometown and basically attacked its own people. That's that's his view. I also know people from the Donbass who is a talk huge about hero. being grateful. Who, people from the Donbass who talk about there's a sense of gratitude that Russia is finally putting an end to the war that they've been living through for eight years. So uh, there's no, certainly there's no uh, uh, unitary Ukrainian voice. It's, it's very mixed and very understandably. So thank you, Andrew.
11: Yeah, that's and a tough Europe. situation. Thanks.
0: Thank you.
12: Hello, everyone. uh birthday, Eron I am Ukrainian, and I'm speaking to you from Zaporozhye, Ukraine, which is very close to the now famous Energodar power plant. So, if you know the news, if it blows up, we'll be the first ones to hear about it. Geez. So,
0: uh, sorry, thank you for calling. I really, uh, I really appreciate you staying up and um and sharing sharing your perspective with us so uh, please tell us what's going on
12: no worries thank you so much for making this possible and i'd like to thank you personally for your great journalistic work i've been following you ever since your work in syria and the whole RussiaGate thing i think you did a great job and thank you so much so i'd like to say that um, I think I am in the absolute minority in Ukraine when it comes to uh, the Russophobia because I think uh, even though Putin thought that um, they'll try to denazify Ukraine and free us from Nazis, Unfortunately, what happened is quite ironic because what happened was quite the opposite. And now all of the Ukrainians united in the hate of everything Russia-related and basically compare Putin's regime to Nazi's Germany. And I think it's a big tragedy for both of our people and it definitely plays to the West's hand, so to speak. And uh, I thought initially that maybe there was a slight chance of this operation actually going through and somehow uh, Russia will actually use its military force to gain power in all major cities of Ukraine. And I don't know, putting some puppet government in our cities and going with negotiations with the West from there. But uh, unfortunately, what we see now is that this assault is probably going to last much longer than a few weeks. Uh, we heard Macron, the president of France, saying that it might last for at least a few years now. And everything seems like you have reported before that Ukraine is going to be a polygon uh, for this war between Russia and the whole West. But uh, I'd like to dispel some myths about uh, Ukraine and uh, Nazis or far-right nationalists. Uh, Even though the 2014 coup was completely uh, unlawful and and illegal, obviously, unfortunately, the West sponsored these far-right groups, uh, probably sector uh, Siege or C-14 and a lot of other far-right groups to basically uh, overthrow the government. So I think we're all... On the same page here. But what uh, I think the major mistake of the Russian regime was uh, is that they waited for so long. Uh, waiting for eight years was a big mistake because, uh, you know, the state propaganda did its thing and a lot of people actually, um, well, became united in their idea of joining Europe and the EU. So maybe if Russia started this whole thing eight years ago, right after the 2014 coup, maybe they had a chance, but now there's definitely no chance for changing someone's mind. So I'm not exactly sure what their end game is because obviously um, I don't take Putin for an idiot or just a psychopath. Obviously they have a plan and I guess it involves destroying the whole infrastructure of uh, Ukrainian cities. And I'm not sure where we go from there, possibly World War well Three, but we'll see. Uh well,
0: so um, sorry you, f- yeah, for no, going off. No, on. no yeah. thank you. I I, I really um, I really appreciate what you're sharing here. I uh, I just wrote about this, that when the Maidan coup happened, the country was very split, that there was even polls showing that a bit more than half the country didn't even approve of the Maidan protests. And when it, when it comes to wanting to join NATO, historically, support before the Maidan coup was already was always pretty low. And I, I saw the Maidan coup as a, basically an effort to overcome pop uh, public opinion, which is very, very divided. But you're saying that in the years since, um, things have gotten have gotten more in the in the western direction.
12: Obviously, yes, and we have a lot of people uh, going from Donetsk and Lugansk republics. You know, people who ran away from war from there after two thousand fourteen. And uh, what they say is basically that both Russia and Ukraine are at fault there. Mm-hmm. That Russia obviously saw the coup as West's um, well, uh, West how do you say it? Well, basically as West grabbing Ukraine and basically doing whatever they want there. So, obviously they wanted to stop it and started the invasion from the East. And uh, yeah, but what I wanted to ask you maybe um uh, have you ever thought about, I don't know, if we look at a wider picture, uh, because, well, I saw your interview with uh, Ben, who, Ben Aries. Yeah. And uh, I really liked his world view. And uh, the thing he said is that uh, obviously Putin was preparing for this thing and uh, with central bank gathering 600, uh, six hundred uh, six billion dollars six hundred billion dollars to basically withstand West uh, sanctions but uh, they made a mistake and lost almost half uh, of these finances to withstand sections so I'm not sure if uh, it was. A major miscalculations on uh, putin's part or if it was a part of a bigger plan to basically destroy russia's economy and i don't know if we look at a wider picture, have you ever considered uh, the world economic forum's part in all of this because as we all as yeah. we all know about Klaus Schwab's famous talk about how through the Young Leaders Program, they penetrate public offices of all major countries, including Russia and Putin's cabinet. Have you ever considered that maybe this whole World War Three thing is part uh, of the Great Reset agenda? And
0: Well, uh, look, I, I've never looked yeah. into the Great Reset, Re- 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 so I can't speak to that. But I do think that there have been it's been a long time has been a campaign to basically cut off Russia's economy and, and, and really cut off the economy of anybody who threatens U.S. hegemony. So that's why Venezuela, Iran, Syria, anybody who's in the way gets their economy uh, uh, seriously attacked. Um, and only when countries like Venezuela become necessary again like they are now because the U.S. is cutting off Russian oil, now they need Venezuelan oil, so now it looks like Venezuela might get a chance to breathe again and have some sanctions removed. So in terms of the um, broader, a broader agenda than that, I don't know. I can't speak to that. But certainly there have been efforts to uh, certainly plans like uh, I definitely think there are people in Washington who are thrilled that Russia invaded because it gave them a, an excuse to undertake all the measures that they've been planning for a long time that would destroy Russia's economy and weaken its ability to be a deterrent to U.S. power. I definitely think that's this has been very welcome by them, but let me ask you. Uh, so you are you are near the Zaporozhia power plant? Is it that one?
12: Uh, it's Zaporozhia, and Chernobyl yeah. is the city near it. Yeah. and that's
0: the and that's the plant where basically there was a there was a firefight between Russia and Ukrainian forces recently, and that's when Russia was accused of essentially uh, striking the nuclear power plant.
12: Yep, definitely. Well. Uh, the another problem is that uh, we live in uh, informational war, and yeah. even for me it's very hard to decide which side tells the truth. Yes, the absolutely. Only thing I can, the only thing I can say is that we have relatives living in Energodar. Mm-hmm. Well, basically relatives of friends, and they actually work on the Energodar power plant. And uh, just a few days before the invasion. They had to sign papers basically saying that if they start working for Russian government, that they will be proclaimed. Um, how do you say it? Well, basically, they will. Uh... <laughs> they'll be
0: traitor. They'll be traitors. Yeah, or enemies. Yeah. Yeah, they'll,
12: yeah. They'll be traitors yeah. to their own country. Yeah, yeah. Okay. and um, as for Russian so to speak occupiers how we call them and they call themselves freers of ukrainians Uh, these people told us that they've already killed some staff members of this nuclear plant who didn't want to work with them Hmm. and now the uh, russian russia did that they're saying Yes, yes. Wow. There are a lot of war crimes on the Russian part, mm. and obviously I can't speak to whether they were being provoked or not, but uh, some transgressions are obviously happening, and
0: yeah. Have you yeah. given any thought to to, to leaving? Are you, Are you staying put? What are your plans?
12: The thing is that uh, the whole male population is not allowed to leave right, the you can't, of course. Yeah, yes, I'm sorry basically. for that.
0: That's a very ignorant question. I'm sorry, of course. <laughs> no worries at all. Yeah, yeah.
12: But yeah, a lot of a lot of people have left the country, and that's absolutely true. I have a lot of uh, friends and relatives who left the country, but only only women and children. I'm not sure how they're going to cope in Europe, but...
0: We'll see. And let me ask you a question: If Russia had just invaded the Donbass under the auspices of protecting the population there, which was under heavy Ukrainian shelling, do you yes. think that would have been a something that that a uh, sizable contingent of Ukrainians would have supported? Um, um
12: sorry. If Russia invaded
0: the the just, just yeah, exactly. Just just the. Republics no. that were under assault, and not the entire country.
3: Well,
12: I I don't see how people would. Yeah, definitely, the reaction would be much milder because basically, uh, the current consensus is that everyone who still live in Donetsk and Lugansk are sort of traitors, but not really. Uh, so I'm not sure, but definitely if if russia only took the eastern part and basically said that you have to you have to make these parts of your country um uh, how do you say independence mm-hmm. i think that that would be a much much softer approach and i think some agreements could be made that way but At this point, I'm not sure. They are talking about negotiations every other day, but we don't see any improvements. You know, our cities keep getting bombed, and people keep getting killed in so-called green corridors. Nothing really, there are no positive improvements. So there's that.
0: It's just, uh, it's just horrific. I'm so sorry you're living through it. And, um, I think I speak for everybody on the call when we say that our thoughts are with you and we're just, we're, we're hoping the best for you and your country. Thank you so much. All right. Well, look, I think we're going to leave it there. And, uh,
12: yeah,
0: sure. I want to thank everybody who called in today. I really appreciate your questions, your comments, your birthday wishes. That means a lot to me, Serge. I'm going to message you cause I hope to stay in touch with you and, uh, over the course of this, of this war. And I, I hope it will end tonight, but for as long as it goes on, uh, I'd like to hear from you and hope, hopefully you can come back and share with us what's, what's going on with you and um, and the people around you. I'm glad to do that. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning into AM live. I'll be back on here Monday morning with Katie Halper. After we do the usability, it's Monday morning live show on YouTube. We come here to Colin. That will be at around 11 a.m eastern time right after monday morning ends so you can check back here if you can if you're available and i'll be doing am live again next sunday for sure and possibly sooner as well if the news requires it so thanks everybody for tuning in and have a great rest of your day